past week on the podcast, Peter and I discussed the topic of anarcho-capitalism and a man named Murray Rothbard. In the course of our discussion, we did not have enough time really to adequately cover uh, Rothbard's ideas and the ideas of anarcho-capitalism itself. So what I've decided to do is just take a little time briefly to give a little bit more background to this idea and maybe perhaps uh, do it justice, so to speak, by a little bit more background information. And maybe if you all are curious, this information might be of help to you and maybe guide your thinking a little bit. As we mentioned on the podcast, anarcho-capitalism is a theory. It's an idea, and ideas are powerful. Um, Even if we don't think about the ideas that motivate our behavior, they still are powerful. Even the lack of an idea of why we do things is still an idea in and of itself. It's an unformed idea, we might say, or it's a a carelessness about life. If we don't think about the whys to the things that we do, even that person is really following an idea. It's sort of a haphazard, careless idea. Or that person will fall prey to other people's ideas who may be very convincing or maybe very persuasive. This idea of anarcho-capitalism is relatively new in the sense that it is um, in its current form. But as with many ideas, they borrow from ideas of the past, and sometimes they're repackaging of the ideas of the past. But with that in mind, let's get into anarcho-capitalism. I'm going to read a definition from libertarianism.org. Please bear with me. It is a rather long quote. And it starts with, I should say, the idea of anarchism. Anarchism is a theory of society without the state in which the market provides all public goods and services such as law and order. Although most anarchists oppose all large institutions, public or private, anarcho-capitalists oppose the state, but not private actors with significant market power. For evidence that the system is workable, anarcho-capitalists point to the 19th century American West, medieval Iceland, and Anglo-Saxon England. I'm going to pause for a moment because we did mention this in the episode of the podcast, but one thing that makes anarcho-capitalists different from your sort of -of run-of-the-mill anarchists is that anarcho-capitalists expect, expect, I should say, a certain order to society by way of the market. And they expect that in a free market society, um, self-interest and mutual exchange will maintain some order in society. So while they're not against all powerful institutions, so to speak, or all powerful private actors like an anarchist would be, anarcho-capitalists leave room for wealthy private individuals who may accumulate wealth in a particular um, industry or particular business. I'm going to continue on now with the quotation. Because anarcho-capitalism is predicated on a capitalist economic system, it requires markets, property, and the rule of law. I'm going to pause for a moment. That last bit is interesting because we assume rule of law requires some type of governing body, like the state or a government. So it's interesting. Continuing with the quote. Many anarchists reject one or more of these elements. Some of these objections are discussed later. That would be in the article. 
kind of got caught up on that, but continuing with the quote, anarcho-capitalists believe that private entities will provide those goods and services necessary for society to function in peace and good order without the existence of a state that coerces individuals into paying for or obeying legal institutions, end quote. I mentioned this earlier, and I'm going to say it again, and it comes right out of this definition. They believe that all goods and services necessary for society, and that means everything. I mean, that means security. Um, in the podcast, we had mentioned fire departments, um, healthcare. All these things will be provided by uh, individuals or private actors, not by the state. But education as well would be one of those things. It would be included in this um, these goods and services. And they believe that this will work and this will function without a government enforcing rules and enforcing laws. In fact, anarcho-capitalists have a pretty cynical view of the state. It comes from, you know, that first part, anarcho, anarchy. And they want to get rid of the state. And they believe in the absence of it, private individuals will be able to carry on their affairs the basis of mutual exchange. Now that's a little background about anarcho-capitalism. Briefly, with the time we have left here, I want to get into Murray Rothbard. Murray Rothbard, that's M-U-R-R-A-Y-R-O-T-H-B-A-R-D, is the one, as I understand it, who coined the phrase anarcho-capitalism. He has written much, and you can read all sorts of things that he's written, a lot about economics. He was an economist, he's a historian, and he was also a political theorist. And as I said, coined this phrase anarcho-capitalism and one was one of the leaders of the movement. The particular essay that we mentioned in the podcast this week is called Anatomy of the State, written by Murray Rothbard. It is really not so much a positive presentation of what an anarcho-capitalist society would look like. Rather, it is more of a sort of negative uh, in the sense of breaking down, criticizing the state or government. And that's really the purpose of the essay. It's to point out how bad or wrong the state is. The essay itself is divided up into parts. There are seven parts in the essay. The parts are as follows. What the state is not, what the state is, how the state preserves itself, how the state transcends its limits, what the state fears, how states relate to one another, and lastly, history as a race between state power and social power. I just want to touch on a few things from this essay that I think are worth considering. While we mentioned on the podcast itself that one of the, the problems as we see it or one of the, the issues that I'd be curious to see how they handle, but one of the issues is what do you do with human nature? And wh while we're on this, this is a, a really important consideration. When we're considering any theory or philosophy or ideology, one question to ask is how does it view human nature? Does it view human nature as good? Does it view human nature as something like neutral? Some people view it as sort of like a blank slate. Or does it view human nature as bad, evil, sinful? 
That's the biblical worldview. The Bible is clear that human beings are born sinful, that they are born uh, slaves to sin. They don't learn to sin. Society doesn't uh, teach them to do what is wrong. Rather, they're born doing what is wrong, and that's what human beings do. Now, we were uncomfortable with this idea, and there are many popular ideas today in our own society that don't view human nature that way. But I think if we look, consider what the Bible says, and even if we're not considered uh, or convinced, excuse me, by what the Bible says, I think if we look at what history tells us and the clear record of history, I think we can be reasonably convinced that human nature is that way. But again, that's my opinion, and Mr. Rothbard might disagree. But let's get a little bit into this essay. Uh, we read a quote, and I'm going to read it again. Rothbard's definition of the state or government is an interesting one. I uh, told a friend this definition, and his response to me was, that's very cynical. And this friend is not, in any way, shape, or form, a big government guy. But even he said that's a cynical definition. Let's read the definition. Quoting Rothbard here. Briefly, the state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment for services rendered, but by coercion. The state obtains its revenue by the use of compulsion, that is, by the use and threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet. I think it's safe to say no Murray Rothbard is going to be on CNN anytime soon. And for many people, this kind of definition of the state is appalling. They view the state as a great provider, a great provider of goods and services, a great provider of things that we need, almost as a savior increasingly. We look at the way some people talk. We have a problem in society. Well, let's get the state to solve it. The origins of this idea, while we're on it, in American history can probably be traced back to the progressive movement. In the United States, let's say roughly from 1890 to the early 20th century, 1920-ish, there's a very strong movement in America known as the progressive movement. And the basic idea of progressives, then, is to use the government, increase the power, strength, and reach of the government to solve what they saw as issues in society. Now, that's a very nice definition of progressives, and we'll leave it there. But um, even our progressives today really can trace a line back to this early this early group of progressives. Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s, when he's crafting the New Deal during the Great Depression, will refer back and see himself as carrying on the mantle of those early progressives. So we have the definition of what Murray Rothbard thinks the state is. First part, monopoly of the use of violence. You know, the state steps in, the state can take life, the state can um, arrest and harm criminals, so to speak, if we can say it that way. Um, interesting first part of his definition when we think about America's past, and uh, it uh, might show the uniqueness of America and the emphasis that we've had on self-defense. Uh, probably there are other nations we can mention, but since we live in America, and since we can relate to that um, example, it is interesting in a society such as America, that the monopoly of the use of force is not exactly one-to-one -one with uh, um, the type of society we have, although it is becoming less and less the case 
that we have full rights and gun ownership and self-protection and self-defense. And I think everyone would be willing to concede that that has changed, that that has been chipped away at, and we have less and less freedom in that regard. Of the second part of his definition, I think we find more people willing to entertain that idea and to think about the state in that way. And really, that's how we should approach this. This is uh, Murray Rothbard picking apart the state, emphasizing the worst parts of it, and I think getting us to think about, maybe a little more clearly, how we should perhaps look at the government. Um, What is clear is that the state does not get its revenue on a voluntary basis. I think we all would agree with that. And something to keep in mind, it collects taxes by force. Governments have done this throughout history. Our own government does it. Um, And all of our institutions that are government-supported, all those that are under the control of the government, I think in particular Mm -hmm. education, receives its funding not on the basis of its merits, not on providing a good and service as you would in the private market and to compete with other businesses, but rather by the rule of law, rather by the threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet. If you don't pay your taxes, well, the government has the authority to throw you in jail, fine you, and all the rest. We're going to jump to the section, How the State Preserves Itself. In this section, How the State Preserves Itself, Rothbard talks about how a government stays in power. And a very interesting discussion and something that I don't know that people think about maybe as much as they should, and that is this, that the state or those who are involved with the state or the government are a minority in society. Most of the people in a society, let's take ours for example, in our case, most of the people in the society, the majority do not work for the government. Now, I don't know the exact numbers right now, and maybe I should have looked that up, but who's in the private sector versus who's in the public sector, but I'm willing to say majority of Americans are in the private sector. I could be wrong. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. You can let me know if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. So if the minority are the rulers and those connected with the rulers, how does the government stay in power? It's a fair question. How is it done? Well, for Rothbard, he has this to say, and I quote, Once a state has been established, the problem of the ruling group or caste is how to maintain their rule. While force is their modus operandi, or their mode of operation, their basic and long-run problem is ideological. For in order to continue in office, any government, not simply a democratic government, must have the support of the majority of its subjects. This support, it must be noted, need not be active enthusiasm. It may well be passive resignation, as if to an inevitable law of nature. But support in the sense of acceptance of some sort it must be. Else the minority of state rules, rulers, would eventually be outweighed by the active resistance of the majority of the public. Okay, how does the state stay in power then? Well, the big issue, according to Rothbard, is ideology. That is what the people believe. That is the key issue. But he says, in uh, any country, the support doesn't have to be active enthusiasm. It doesn't have to be that all the people are jumping up and down and excited about their government. It could well be passive resignation as as if to an inevitable law of nature. 
Here, he may have in mind Christians, such as myself, because Christians have a little bit different approach. While I weigh and and enjoy thinking about what Rothbard has to say, Christians have a little bit different standard that they live up to, because we are commanded to follow those who are in authority, but not because they are the best. Not at all. It doesn't matter whether they're good or bad. The truth is we are commanded to obey those who are in authority over us. And why? Because God has put them in authority over us. God has done it. He has put them there. Therefore, we are commanded to submit to them. This might be sort of in the back of the mind of Rothbard, back of Rothbard's mind when he says the inevitable law of nature. There are also people who don't even, probably don't even think that much in the sense of what I just laid out, who are not Christians, who just follow the government because it's the government. And, you know, it just, the government is what it is and I have to obey it. Um, But then, of course, there are also going to be those who have the active enthusiasm. I thought about this in the time of COVID when the government was making all these laws and people were following it. The shutdowns and things like that, if all the citizens, let's say of the state of New York, had decided we are not going to obey these restrictions being put upon us by the state of New York, the state of New York would not have the manpower within New York State itself in order to suppress all of this rebellion, so to speak, all of this breaking of the law. But, of course, that didn't happen. Rothbard also lays out um, in this section to develop a little bit the idea of uh, ideology is that there is a subgroup within a state. This is an interesting one when we think about America. He says, and I quote, uh, those ruling a country, that's actually not a quote, that's my words, now I'll start his quote, must have a sizable group of followers who enjoy the prerequisites of rule. For example, the members of the state apparatus, such as the full-time bureaucracy or the established nobility. Now we don't have nobility anymore, at least the way it's not in this country, but we do have a full-time bureaucracy. Very interesting that we have a number of people who do work for the government, who do work in the bureaucracy, who, let me just ask you, who do you think these folks will support? Someone who's going to cut the bureaucracy or someone who is going to increase it? And I'll leave it at that. A little bit about ideology. Real quick, ideology is a system of ideas and ideals, especially one that forms the basis of economic or political policy. For Rothbard, ideology is really the most essential thing, the most essential thing to maintaining the power of the state. You have to convince the minor, or excuse me, the majority of your subjects, or you have to convince the folks in the majority group that your rule is right, that this government is right, that this maybe particular group of rulers or leaders is right. Um, And this is done by way of ideology, by way of convincing folks of the rightness of the government. He says, and I quote, for this essential acceptance, the majority must be persuaded by ideology that their government is good wise, and at least inevitable, and certainly better than other conceivable alternatives. 
I think this is an important thing to keep in mind, especially when we are confronted with anything produced by the government, whatever that might be, commercial, these days commercial, social media posts, videos, speeches, whatever it might be, we must be, I think, a little bit cynical. It was very uh, recent that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris did a video with some children where they were doing something space-related. I I can't remember. I watched just a few clips of it. They were going to uh, see a a telescope, Hubble telescope maybe. I can't remember. Anyway, it was uh, uncomfortable, as a lot of her videos are. It was cringy, as the kids say. But it came, uh, came out later that uh, these children were not just, you know, they didn't just show up there and get an opportunity to be with the vice president. It turned out later that these children were actually actors, child actors who were playing a part. And this video thing with the vice president was pure propaganda, pure propaganda, plain and simple, to try to make the administration uh, look good. This would be an example of ideology, trying to convince the people to support the rulers, convince the people that those ruling are good. Uh, I think it's something we do need to keep in mind and be wise when we're dealing with with our government. Uh, Rothbard has a quote outside of this essay. It's a very good one. And it, it says, and I quote, the greatest danger to the state is independent intellectual criticism. The state... Government is not interested in that. Rothbard has another statement here that is uh, interesting. It's, it's kind of thought-provoking. He says, and I quote, Another potent ideological force is to deprecate the individual and exalt the collectivity of society. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of that recently with the whole COVID thing. It's not important. You, as an individual, not as important. Rather, you need to subject yourself for the collective good of society. Deprecate the individual. Raise the collective. Deprecate the individual. Exalt the collective. That very word itself, the collective, I'm very uncomfortable using because that really has strong Marxist overtones. The idea of the collective. Okay, I want to touch on one bit. I've gone farther or longer, farther, longer. I've gone longer than I intended to. And I want to just finish up here briefly with one last bit from this essay. Not sure I'm doing this essay justice, but I'm at least trying. The last section is very interesting. History as a race between state power and social power. History as a race between state power and social power. Let me read his definitions. First, of social power. Social power is man's power over nature, his cooperative transformation of nature's resources and insight into nature's laws for the benefit of all participating individuals. Social power is the power over nature, the living standards achieved by men in mutual exchange. There at the end, we see that key word for anarcho-capitalists, mutual exchange or voluntary exchange for mutual benefit. 
The basic idea is I provide some good or service to you, you give me something in return, and we voluntarily decide to this agreement because it is mutually beneficial to us. It's the idea of the free market, not crony capitalism, but the free market, and that is mutual, mutually beneficial exchange. So social power for Rothbard is human beings uh, learning more about the natural world, learning more about the world around us, and learning how to use the resources, change the resources around us into usable products, into things that are valuable, things that we want and can use, and then providing them to others in the form of business. Right? That's his idea of social power. He says that a corollary of social power is freedom. Right? That's in another part of the essay. A corollary of social power is uh, freedom. Right? And I think that's going to come up later. Um, and I'm going to mention this. A corollary increase in freedom, which I'll mention a little later. I jumped the gun a little bit, but remember that idea. What is state power? Well, here's his definition of state power. State power, as we have seen, is the coercive and parasitic seizure of the, this production, a draining of the fruits of society for the benefit of non-productive, actually anti-productive, rulers. Again, that cynical definition of the state for Rothbard. For Rothbard, the state really doesn't provide anything. Nothing at all, really, for him. No value. In his mind, the free market individual actors could provide the good that the state does. Not saying I agree with that. Not saying I agree with that. Just merely presenting his view, which is, some might say, a very cynical view. But he sees the state, the government, as being parasitic and coercive. It comes in and robs the free market. It comes in and takes from those who are actually productive, in Rothbard's mind, business businesses that are producing goods, producing value, okay? The state comes in by force and takes from it. That's state power. But in this section, he presents a way to interpret history, and we're going to, this would be the last part we get into. And his uh, idea of how to interpret history is to see it as a battle. He says a race, maybe battle is better, a race between state power and social power, between these two types of power. And he says, and I quote, if the 17th through the 19th centuries were, in many countries of the West, times of accelerating social power and a corollary increase in freedom, there's that thing I mentioned earlier, and a corollary increase in freedom, peace, and material welfare, the 20th century has been primarily an age in which state power has been catching up with a consequent reversion to slavery, war, and destruction. I've spoken on this podcast in uh, History Minute episodes, or History Minutes, I've spoken of the uh, importance of how we interpret history. And there are many different schools of thought with interpreting, uh, interpreting, interpreting, whew, interpreting history. And uh, there are different views and different approaches, and then a whole nother area of uh, doing history is how we write about it, which is, of course, tied to how we interpret it. In Rothbard's mind, under this way of interpreting history, 17th through the 19th century were, in his mind, times of accelerating social power. And again, that's man, mankind, human beings acting freely 
to better understand the world around them and harness the resources of the world around them for wealth and production and um, all that comes with that. And in his mind, also a corollary uh, goes along with increase in freedom, peace, and material welfare. So with the rise of social power comes more freedom for the individual, more peace, in Rothbard's mind, less fighting, more peace. And then lastly, material welfare. Everybody does better as a result of more social power, more freedom in the market to produce and to sell, and very importantly, for mutual exchange. But then the 20th century comes along. And in Rothbard's mind, 20th century is the age of state power, catching up with and overcoming the previous centuries of social power. It's a very interesting way to look at it. And if you think about the 20th century, the 20th century was certainly a time of state power. We could just mention a few. Fascism in Italy, fascism in Japan, national socialism in Germany, Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism in Russia, of course, uh, Marxism in North Korea, communism in North Korea, communism in China, communism in Vietnam, um, just to name a few examples of state power of totalitarian regimes that have arisen in the 20th century. And the state has, we might say, evolved and has developed new ways in the 20th century to subjugate and control its citizens. All these totalitarian regimes were great experiments in propaganda, great experiments in propaganda, and showed the power of modern mass media forms of propaganda to control a population. I mean, they were all tremendous, tremendous examples of that. So when we come to the end of Rothbard, how can it inform our understanding? Is there anything that we can take from it? And that's the, the question I leave you with today. 